Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Story Box, where I, your host, Jay Phantom has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the story box and hear more about our guest today. Welcome everybody back to the Storybox Podcast. My friends, I have a huge favor to ask you starting off with. This one is going to be a deep dive. So I highly recommend that you get your minds right, whatever you want to do. Uh, get some coffee, get some caffeine, uh, get a pen and paper out, make sure that you're writing down notes because this has to be one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had so far on the Storybox podcast. My next guest today is Dr. Andrew Huberman. Now, if you don't know who he is, Dr. Huberman is a neuroscientist. He studies comparative neurology to, to better understand the human brain and the human brain evolution. He's also working to make neuroscience more accessible and relevant to people's everyday life. And he's in particularly good position to do that uh, by being at Stanford School of Medicine, where he's an associate professor in the Department of Neurobiology and another department of Ophthalmology. He's, he has his own lab called the Huberman Lab, and he performs clinical trials using molecular genetic physiological and virtual reality tools, which is honestly fascinating, which is why I told you, you guys to get the pen and paper out because we talk all that sort of stuff. His work includes developing ways to regenerate the brain after injury and in neurodegenerative disorders, mainly those causing blindness. Another aspect of his research uh, passes the mechanisms for stress and courage. He also looks at testing treatments and protocols for anxiety disorders and trauma. He's won numerous awards and has been recognized for his work finally on other podcasts like Dave Asprey's podcast, uh, Joe Rogan's, and Rich Rolls. Also, with recently Ed Milet too, we only got into part one of this talk because there's so much to cover. I had so many more questions, and we will be doing this again. I apologize that it has taken me this long to actually release this episode, but now is a good time to actually release it amongst all the other ones that he has, has been on at the same time. And this is a little bit different to all the others I've noticed. The, Dr. Andrew and I, we more focus on uh, his story side of things, which is what the story box is really about. And we just have a great conversation that's very, very informative. And I know you guys are going to get a lot out of it. So with all that being said, everyone, here's what I need you guys to please do. If you do get something out of this episode, share it around to all your friends and family members. If you do want to see this episode in the flesh, you can do that now over on YouTube. All the links will be in the show notes below. Uh, you can also subscribe for more. Uh, we're doing content every single day now, so you guys are not going to miss out. And also, guys, please let us know what you think uh, by leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Really, really hope you uh, can support us that way and spread these kinds of messages and stories around uh, to the world, really, to help change people's lives. If you've ever wondered about the brain and how it functions and how trauma impacts the brain, how you can manage uh, stress, anxiety, those sort of things with the brain, this is the episode for you. So, everyone, now's the time to dive into the story box and hear Dr. Andrew Huberman's story. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for having me here. And um, you're one of the few people to ever pronounce my last name correctly. So um, without <laughs> oh, having to ask. So I thought I was butchering it. That. <laughs> um, yeah, bullseye. Um, and, well, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Uh, I've been, I was listening, I was telling you before, I was listening to Dave Asprey's podcast with you, which was quite in-depth and quite fascinating. And I loved how he went and talked about the brain. And the brain is something that I am fascinated by. Before we dive into all that and your work, and I guess really just speak about all these aspects, which are quite fascinating, I have one question that I love asking people to start with, and that is, what does success look like to you? That's a, that's a great question and a hard question. Um, because for me, the answer to that has been, um, very dynamic over time. It's changed a lot over time. Um, so I'm going to answer it in three parts. I would say, uh, you know, early in my career, which started early, I've been in this game a long time. Um, uh, you know, relatively given that I'm you know, about 45 years old soon and, uh, into about 25 years ago, I just was hungry to learn as much as I could about how the brain works. And I really wanted a place in the culture and career of neuroscience. I wasn't careerist in the sense I wasn't just obsessed with like publishing papers and getting grants, although those are important metrics for success, but I, I wanted to be a brain explorer. Mm. And so success then and now has always been about discovering things that at least to my knowledge have not been discovered before. And then over time, I would say that answer has morphed to include teaching that to as many people as care to hear or will listen. Um, because I think there's so many gems in the field of neuroscience that people can put into action in their life. And that leads me to the third thing, which is, you know, I'm really interested in spending a lot of my time and energy on tool development. So tools to access um, neuroplasticity, this incredible ability for the brain to change in response to experience, tools to control stress, tools to leverage stress. Um, so it's really about discovery and tool development and sharing tools. You know, one of the reasons I teach neuroscience on Instagram of all places, which is kind of an odd place for, you know, a university professor to teach is because I just, you know, very few people, relatively speaking, are going to ever walk into one of the classes that I, that I teach or, um, or we'll walk into a laboratory, even fewer will walk into a laboratory. So if I can spark some interest in science and some youngsters, if I can share something about science and the, the wonders of the brain with people, then that to me is the ultimate. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm about 45 years old. I mean, maybe David Sinclair will extend this number, but chances are, you know, I'll probably live to be about 90, 100, maybe 120 if I'm really lucky. You know, maybe Sinclair, uh, hopefully David sa save me and maybe extend it out to like 150 or 200. Who knows? I mean, he'll probably pull it off. Um, very smart fellow. But I, um, you know, I have to be realistic with myself, which is if the more information I can share, the more of an impact I can have um, mm. in terms of, you know, sharing science and making people realize this incredible, we talk about potential, but the, most of that's inside our skulls. So that's what success is for me these days. And, and winning for is for me these days, teaching, teaching, educating, teaching, teaching. Mm. I love that response because it, it, it draws out so many questions for me to actually ask you. And you mentioned uh, Dr. David Sinclair as well, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious, I guess, going right back to, your fascination and your interest with the brain, where did that come from? And what age were you when you realized, oh, I want to be a scientist that studies uh, the brain? Uh, yeah, so there are two answers to that. As you'll notice, there are multiple answers to each of your questions. Um, you know, so I grew up in a family. Uh, my dad uh, was first generation immigrant to the US. He is from Argentina. He came here on a naval scholarship to do physics. He's a physicist. So I grew up in a home where there were a couple very strong themes. And one of the themes was science and a life of inquiry just seemed to make him very happy. In mm. fact, um, so that was one. And the and I'll mention a little bit more about that in a second. But the other was that, you know, I early on I was exposed to conversations between graduate students and postdocs. In those days, they would come over to the house for dinner, we'd have barbecues. And 
And I, I came to understand pretty early on that there was this group of people that we call scientists that get paid to figure things out and to pursue their curiosity. And, um, and I think that got embedded in me very young. Now I didn't grow up in a house where people talked about sports. So uh, I knew nothing about that, but I could tell you, you know, who won the Nobel prize. I knew a lot about some of the, uh, more interesting dynamics between scientists and their personal lives, you know, by over, you know, eavesdropping on com- uh, conversations between my parents. Uh, it was very, it was an interesting place to grow up. But basically, when I was about six years old, um, I remember this very well. My dad used to walk me to school about halfway, and then he'd let me go the remainder of the way on my own. Mm. And he would split off down this path, and he would go to his laboratory. He was a theoretical physics at that time, working on some of the early foundations of chaos theory. Oh. And I remember asking him, I said, so, you know, what do you do? <laughs> you know, like you, we leave it, we part here every day. What do you do? And he said, well, I study how the natural world works, you know, why things fall down, not up, why they, um, and I study things that are very, very small, smaller than either you or I could see and how they work and how they make up everything, including you and me. And, it, and I was like, that's that's cool. I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, six. And I said, do you like it? And he said, well, you know, that feeling when the next day is your birthday. Mm. I said, yeah, I absolutely know that feeling six years old. Right. And he said, well, I feel that way every day when I go to work. And I was like, wow. So I said, I want to do what you do. And he said, no, I don't think you want to do what I do because by the time you're old enough to do that, um, a lot of the great puzzles of physics are going to be figured out. It's nice to get into a field of science early, Mm. you know, and there aren't too many footprints on the beach. I remember him saying that. And I said, well, what should I do then? And he said, well, we don't know a lot about the brain. You know, there are a lot of people that make up stories about how the brain works. This was in the, you know, late seventies, right? He said, "Uh, but, you know, we don't know a lot about the brain, but I think there's a lot to learn there. And I said, well, then I'll figure out how the brain works. So I declared that I was going to do that at age six, but, um, but I had no idea what I was talking about, frankly. And it wasn't until much later. So to make a long story short, from, uh, you know, about 13 to 19, I was completely tuned away from school because of sort of like complex family life at home. And I was barely going to high school. I was obsessed with skateboarding and, you know, and hanging out with my girlfriend at the time. And frankly, I was getting into trouble. I, I really left any kind of academic sentence, barely graduated high school. Uh, did manage to graduate, followed her, my girlfriend off to university. It's the only reason I went, basically lived in the parking lot outside her dorm. So I could be near her. She was kind of like my family at that point. And then a couple years later, joined the uh, the fire academy. I was interested in becoming a firefighter. I never went through the whole process. But then I took a, I sat in on a class at the university. This guy who's a professor who was talking about thermal regulation and neurochemicals involved in depression and schizophrenia and hunger and feeding. I'm like, this is the coolest stuff ever. He was explaining to me how the world worked at a, at a level that made sense. Had it been a class on quantum mechanics, it would have just, I think I would have been uninterested. Had it been something about sociology and how cultures migrate and interact, and that I probably wouldn't have been like, eh. But there was something about the scale of, of inquiry, the kind of level of detail and yet not so much detail that it was removed from reality that I thought, this is amazing. I, I want to know more about it. So I went and told him and he said, well, come work in my lab. So I worked in his lab. And then he said, you know, you seem to have a knack for this stuff. And so eventually I enrolled and I started doing research. And I had, at that point, I had to work very, very hard to become a scientist. I, I had huge gaps in my knowledge. You know, by then I was about 19 years old, I had huge gaps um, in my knowledge base, I had to, I actually got a small studio apartment and was living alone. And I committed myself to just reading books, not just about math and science, but literature, just trying to make, you know, take advantage of whatever brain plasticity was left at that age and, you know, pack as much knowledge as I could work in the laboratory. And that's pretty much all I did besides exercise, eat and sleep. And I made the decision. I, I was going to become a scientist and, uh, you know, uh, eventually went on to get my PhD, become a professor, eventually, you know, got to Stanford, got tenure, just a lot, lot of work. It, you know, it's been a lot of work. There have been some scars and scrapes along the way. It wasn't all easy, but I, I fell in love with 
this thing that we call the brain. And I decided, you know, some people decide to join the military. Some people decide to become professional athletes. Some people become lawyers. I was like, sign me up. I want to be a brain explorer. So I think the seed was planted at age six, but I didn't water that seed until much later. It's fascinating because I'm curious about, did you end up staying with that girl or did you just break it off and then just study science? Ah, uh, you're the first person to ever ask that. Well, um, I did not, uh, you know, as, uh, we were, we were like family to one another. I think, um, had I been smarter, I might've managed to, and more talented, I would have managed to balance both things. Uh, We remained on good terms over the years. She's a lovely person, but no, we, we eventually went our separate ways. Um, and you know, but I still credit her for going off to university and the fact that I was I was just so in love with her, frankly, mm-hmm. that I want to be near her. So, um, you know, it's funny how life works. You know, the 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 events that tie together to lead you to a particular uh, point are so nonlinear. I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say that. Many people have said it. And I think the Steve Jobs um, commencement speech that he gave at Stanford um, shortly before he passed away mm-hmm. uh, about connecting the dots um, is a really beautiful lecture that I think uh, people could listen to on YouTube, but yeah, it's, it's true. You know, you, you follow your heart and you try and be rational about certain things and you try and be heartfelt about other things. And I don't know, somehow you end up a a neuroscientist. (laughs) It's, it's really fascinating how life sort of takes you exactly where you need to be, even though you may not realize it at the time, you just got to be open to whatever comes your way. And, you know, I've been, I've been through the ringer in terms of going through one career path to the next that has actually surprisingly led me here and it's leading me on, on the right trajectory. And I've been through all the, you know, the turmoils and the fears and uh, not knowing exactly where to go and, and all that sort of stuff. Like it's just part of being a human. I'm curious for you, when you started, I guess, in this field of, of studying science, what kept you there, do you think? If you hadn't been a good student per se, for such a long period of time, what, what changed this time? Yeah, uh, great question. So I, you know, it, it was just raw curiosity. I wanted, you know, the, really the only reason to do science, like you're not, you're not going to get rich, you're not going to get famous. Um, you know, you can make a comfortable living, but it's a, it's a, it's a fairly hard life being a scientist. You have to raise funding consistently. It's the, the way it was described to me by a very successful scientist. When I got my professorship that, that day, he said, um, look, it's just like pinball. You never win. The best you can do is just keep playing. You know, if you're playing, you're, you're good. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. And that's really true. Um, but you know, I think I'm innately curious. I love learning. Um, and I love, you know, to me, curiosity is a very special thing because curiosity mm. is really being motivated to figure things out, but where you're not attached to a particular answer. A lot of times we hear the word curiosity and we think, oh, you know, I'm curious to find out if, but a lot of times science is about just peeling back layers and suspending your expectation of what might be there. Mm. I think if you love surprises, Science is definitely the life for you because if you think something is going to work a particular way, mother nature and biology is going to shove a different answer right in your face. And as she does that, you realize that it's far more clever, often far simpler or more diabolical than you ever thought it could be. Mm. Um, So I think I was just curious. I've always had a strong drive, frankly, like when I was younger and I was into sports and, you know, I've always been athletic, although I wouldn't say I'm a great athlete, but I've always been very driven that I I'm, I'm hungry, you know, and I think that um, I love, you know, one of the things nowadays about podcasts and YouTube and all this stuff is there's so much information. I love it. It's like, I feel like I'm in a buffet. I, I mean, I used, I spent my youth in bookstores. I love to read for information. I love stories. So I think it being curious, um, really helped. Um, and I think some fear, I mean, you know, without getting into too many of the details, I mean, between having a very complicated home life as a teenager and then going to university and realizing, you know, I was 17, then 18, then 19, you know, getting into trouble, you know, it's one thing to be a kid and getting into trouble and, and, you know, getting into fights and, and a lot of the kind of like mischief that, 
kids get into sometimes. But then what I realized at some point at about 19, I realized if I keep this up, I'm going to be a young adult who mm. is getting into trouble. At that point, nobody, nobody's going to care about the backstory, right? Life stops being so forgiving. And so I, I was afraid of becoming a loser. I was afraid of becoming nobody. I had all this drive, but not actually completing anything, not having anything to tack to my efforts. And I can't recall that I ever spent a lot of time planning out the future, except I did write down, I want a PhD by the time I'm 30. I want a professorship by the time I'm 35. I want tenure by the time I'm 40. But that makes it sound like it was all planned out at day to day. I think that my dad told me a story a long time ago, and he's repeated it several times. So I'm inclined to believe that it's true because he also doesn't, he's a scientist. He's, he's a man of facts. So because he was a physicist, he had a lot of exposure to Einstein, Feynman, Gilman. These are the greats of physics in the last century. Mm. And there's a famous story about Einstein that's not often told where people were asking for his autograph as they often would, right? He's Einstein. And at one point he took a picture of himself and he put an arrow to his nose and he wrote the source of all my great ideas. <laughs> and he, he was a, it was kind of a humoristic thing, of course, but you know, you have to develop a sense of intuition. Intuition is not about feeling like your feelings are more valid than facts in the outside world. It's something that is about attaching your feelings to the facts of the outside world. So your feelings of delight or disappointment start to be led by truths that are outside you. Mm. Now I'm a human being. So a lot of my feelings don't stem from facts in the outside world. They stem from my own experience. Cause I'm, you know, that's the way I'm wired. That's the way most everybody's wired. But when you do science properly, it's this weird kind of state of mind where you start letting your body be the God, you're letting the outside world guide your actions so that you're doing the right experiments. If you get so attached to doing things a certain way, you won't ever come to the answers. And so you start getting led by these external things. And you, and so curiosity is the bridge between your feelings and the facts of the outside world. And you just start peeling back layers and going, and it's a very magical experience. I realize this is all probably sounding very abstract, but children do this naturally. Mm. They just want to dig in the sandbox. They want to explore. They want to play with things the way that they think it might be interesting or not. And so I think these circuits are embedded in us as children. We arrive into the world with them and then we tend to enforce more and more rules because you, that's just the way the world works. But yeah, a dose of intuition, a heavy dose of curiosity, and let's face it, you have to be willing to work hard at something and stick to something for a while. And that's where drive comes in and drive is cultivated. It's not, you're, some people are born with it, but I think you just get good at staying on the same scent trail. Have you been you just, able to... Sorry, have you been able to study where drive actually come from? Like where, which part of the brain? Same with curiosity, or are we just naturally given it? Like when we're born, we're always like yeah, baby, naturally curious. Yeah. So th there are two molecules in particular that are relevant here, and and now I think um, for the listeners, I think you know this is everybody has these brain circuits. Mm. The two circuits I'm referring to are the ones that take advantage of the molecule dopamine and norepinephrine, sometimes also called adrenaline. Okay. So adrenaline and norepinephrine are the, they're the molecule. It's the same thing really, but it's mm. the molecule that's released in the brain and body that makes you want to get up and move. It's actually the molecule of stress. It's the molecule of agitation. It's the molecule of moving you from one position to a new position. It cues your body that something has changed and it makes you want to be in action. That's why when you get stressed, your hands might shake, your breathing quickens, your heart quickens. It's, it's a neurochemical trying to move you away from your current position to a new position. Very ancient system in the brain, very powerful. The dopamine system is often discussed because it's the molecule of reward. Like when you achieve something, you get this feeling of well-being but dopamine actually is the molecule of motivation. It Dopamine is the molecule that's released when you're pursuing something that's outside the, the confines of your skin, that you're reaching for something in the world, that you're aspiring to something. Mm. And I'll add a third chemical. Serotonin 
is a reward chemical as well, but it's the molecule that tends to be secreted in the brain when we're happy with what we have, and it tends to make us want to stay still. So you think you can start thinking about things like gratitude or the feeling after a big meal or seeing your dog or missing my dog or, uh, you know, holding a loved one or spending time with people that you already formed a connection with. Those tend to evoke the release of neurochemicals like serotonin, oxytocin, et cetera. The dopamine system is all about what's out in the world that you're going to go pursue. And again, this is a very ancient system. Mother Nature put these systems in us and designed them to be pretty generic so that if I fell in love with science, I want to pursue science and the various things that involve a life of science. For somebody else, it might be sport. For somebody else, it might be literature. For somebody else, it might be business. Whatever it is, that sparks your curiosity, dopamine is released as you move toward the thing that you seek. And it's really about rewarding you for movement towards things that are away from your physical body. And this could be conceptual too, not just, you know, in the room. So we've got these different chemicals, one that makes you want to move, one that makes you want to stay still, one that rewards you for going out and moving from your current position. And it makes sense why mother nature would wire us that way. Because if you think about it, if you have, let's say you were um, thirsty and you were feeling, you're going to feel agitated. You're going to get up and start looking for water. And then let's say you see a stream, but it's a muddy stream. Bah, but there you get a, some dopamine release. So you continue up that stream so that you would eventually get to the clean body of water. Mm. We needed rewards dished out along the way. And the rewards, if you think about it, you're not drinking that water. The rewards are chemical. They're coming from within. So when you say what's drive, drive is the combination of norepinephrine and dopamine. But I mentioned the serotonin system and that it makes us happy with what we have because it has a certain replenishment feature to it. It allows us to continue down the path of pursuit. It is a sore and bad mistake for people to always just be in a mode of drive and pursuit. Mm. And actually, just one other thing about this is that if you look at certain drugs of abuse, you find that they tend to fall into one or other camp. People who take cocaine and methamphetamine, it, it heavily hit, um causes the release of norepinephrine and dopamine, and they get very anxious to get out and go pursue things. Mm. People who do drugs that um, tend to cause a lot of release of serotonin. So these would be things of the, um, you know, marijuana, psilocybin, these kinds of drugs tend to make you pretty happy with what you've got. You want to go into kind of rest and digest and eat mode. So there's this kind of push pull between these. I'm referring to these as the extremes, but these are chemical systems that were designed for the purpose of adaptive living. It's just mm -hmm. that drugs of abuse hijack those neurochemicals and put our body into states of one or the other extreme. That That's fascinating line of thought because I want to talk about we're all different in our mindsets and everything like that. So does that mean we all have different levels of the chemicals in our body when we're born or are we naturally like do we learn it as we go along? And as we're learning it, do we then form more chemicals or where do those chemicals actually grow or can we, can we get them more? Is it from food? Where, where does it come from? Yeah. So there, there may be some genetic component, you know, some, some forms of like what they call major depression, which are, you know, severe depression, um, uh, or on the one hand could be caused by, um, having fewer neurons that manufacture serotonin, for instance, um, or, uh, people who are very high on the sensation seeking scale for this, you know, sort of using psych psychology language might have dopamine circuits that are particularly robust, but so they're going to be bored with anything except the extreme sports and they're kind of higher, higher levels of, you know, but in general, so there's a distribution and, mm -hmm. Um, I think we all come into the world with uh, a bias toward one system or the other, but, and some of it is nature and some of it is nurture. Some of it might be due to upbringing. Like I grew up, uh, I wasn't very good, unfortunately, but you know, I grew up skateboarding. I like Muay Thai boxing. You know, when I run, I like to run fast or I like to run, you know, seven miles as fast as I can. You know, I'm kind of high on that. I like novelty. I like sensation seeking, you know, I like some softer music. I love classical music, but a lot of times it's like, loud, fast rules, you know? And, um, so some people, they get more of a, uh, they're tuned to things that are a little bit mellower. So I think there are some, some, there's some variation. Um, but we can all tap into these circuits and, you know, and for many people, it's 
a question of how much they're willing to embrace the agitation and discomfort that comes from that norepinephrine circuit. Mm. You know, we have this kind of fantasy about learning and this fantasy about flow. In fact, I, you know, I'm friends with Stephen Kotler and I really love the work on flow, rise of Superman, you know, um, stealing fire, all that. But, you know, flow is a highly desirable state. The idea that you can be in this place where everything is working. Most of the time, success at something, whether or not school or career, is the result of progressive th- layering down of very thin sheets of success that are sometimes even transparent to you as you lay them down, but, and with tremendous effort, these are not light sheets of paper. These are lead sheets of very thin lead sheets of paper. Mm. And so we love the idea of a trampoline that's going to put us into the realm of high performance. But when you look at communities that can perform extremely well in their, whether or not it's neurosurgeons or writers or elite special forces, there's a strong element of what a friend of mine actually who used to be in special forces describes like crawl, walk, run. If you look at the training, it's built up over very basic things over years and years. And so I think as we talk about these dopamine circuits and these serotonin circuits, there's some important principles that people could take away and apply in their own life, which is we have to remember that all rewards, all rewards, whether or not they're financial or a degree or securing a mate or whatever it is, all rewards are neurochemical. Ultimately, we don't take money and cram it in our ear. It's a, it's a neurochemical reward, and they are all from within. Mm. We don't eat money, right? We, even food, when we eat food, it's the dopamine and the serotonin that's released in response to the ingestion of those nutrients. So one of the, the powerful tools that people can learn to leverage is to, I would say for the serotonin system, the most powerful one is probably gratitude. I know it sounds a little bit woo and kind of light, but if you look at really high performers, they know how to use gratitude to access states of recovery and well-being that allows them to lean into effort again. Mm. So gratitude is the simple practice of taking a moment to, you know, you could do, you know, five minutes, but even just a minute or a moment to just appreciate what you have in, in terms of what's working. And sometimes when we're depressed or we're unhappy, we, we don't want to go there. But what's amazing is when those molecules are released, it then allows us to lean back into this perception of the outside world that's very positive and when we see possibility. Mm. The other one is, you know, and so I always say gratitude is not complacency. Gratitude is a power tool for high performers and, and they don't always advertise it, but they, they use it. So sometimes it's as much as just saying, look, I'm lucky I can open my eyes today, right? Mm-hmm. And, but really dropping into that feeling and feeling the surge of neurochemicals that associ- that's associated with that allows you to then lean into action to go pursue other things. It's not about sitting around all day just feeling buzzed on your own sense of well-being. That's not it. Dopamine too, as you push through effort, like for instance, last week I had a very long hard day of just meeting, meeting back to back. And I found myself pretty angry, tired, and resentful by the end of the day. Mm. There are two things you can do at that point. You can, first of all, humor is the ultimate way to release dopamine in the brain. And it immediately releases that sense of just grinding. And that tells you that it has to be neurochemical because these chemicals, it's not like I took some magic pill. I just, I sort of laughed at myself because these were all things, A, that I signed up for and that B, I really want to do. So there's that immediate switch is more or less proof that these are neurochemical systems in the brain. And the word hack gets thrown around a lot lately, biohacking. I hate that term, frankly. Uh, no disrespect to Dave, who's a pioneer of, in, in general of wellness and biohacking, but like, I hate the term because it, a hack is using something for a purpose that it wasn't intended. You know, it's like me taking my mug of coffee like and um, yeah, and using it for something else. But you know, these circuits that I'm talking about, about humor and gratitude, this is mother nature's way of embedding in us control dials over our neurochemistry. And similarly, if you're in pursuit of goals that are very hard or you're searching for life path or something, regardless to what that life path is, you need to self-dose these sense of reward. You need to tell yourself every once in a while, look, I may not have the answers, but the fact that I'm seeking is a powerful indication that I'm on the right path. Now, that's not confusing your feeling or this self-talk with the result. It's not affirmation. It's not positive self-talk. Positive self-talk is about telling yourself you're doing well when perhaps maybe you're not. But it's about learning to reward that effort process neurochemically. 
And this has a name and I didn't invent it. So I want to be clear. This is, you know, Carol Dweck, my colleague in psychology has this um, discovered growth mindset, which is this mindset of yet the, I'm not there yet, but it's also the mindset of being willing and excited to lean into the effort process. So I'm kind of spelling these things out because when we talk about neurochemistry, it starts people, you know, we don't yet have tools that we can just like pop off a section of our skull and stimulate the dopamine pathway. Mm. Drugs like cocaine do it so non-specifically that you inevitably end up in trouble. It's not a good path. And learning to, to control these things psychologically is powerful. And I'll, I know I'm running long, but I'll just say one other thing, which is that physical movement forward is powerful. A student of mine a couple of years ago, Lindsay Soleil published a paper in Nature showing that in the, when facing fear and anxiety, if an animal or person moves forward toward, in an adaptive way, you don't want to get yourself killed, but in an adaptive way toward the thing that scares you, it triggers release of dopamine, which stimulates more forward movement. And so a lot of people, they were, they're waiting to feel calm to move forward against their fear. And it, you know what? It's never going to happen. The calm is over a trench of extreme agitation. And that's the reality, but there's a dopamine hit that comes with that, that allows you then to move to the next milestone and the next milestone. So this is the basic system by which we evolved. This is, you know, these systems existed tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago in our brains and the brains of other animals. It's what allows animals to hunt along scent trails. It's what allowed us to forage for new land and territory mates and build technology and do hard things. So the more that people can tap into these mindsets and these neurochemical systems, the better. And the way to do that is by saying, I have the power of faculty. I can, meaning not a uh, not, uh, uh, professor type faculty, but faculty, like I can control my workings. Just like I can pick up my mug, mm. I can introduce a thought. I might not be able to suppress a negative thought, but I can introduce a thought. And rewarding myself for just the effort of introducing a thought or using humor, laughing at oneself, you know, remembering that gratitude for what we have is so powerful for resetting us, allows us to keep going. And it's a, it's a self-propagating system. Mm. And, um, and on the flip side, cynicism and frustration are very dangerous. You know, I, I see it in the culture that I'm in, not at Stanford, but um, really, because it's a great group, frankly, that is uh, very, very optimistic. But you see this in groups that cynicism starts to fester. And we start looking at all the things that are wrong. And it's exhausting. Mm. And it's literally like taking money and just throwing it out the window. And the money I'm referring to is kind of an energy to live. It's a will to live and to seek and to improve. Cynicism is the worst thing. It's sometimes associated with intelligence, because sometimes you'll find very smart very articulate people that are cynical. And I'll tell you, um, I'll go toe to toe with any of them. And I'll tell you, they are badly wrong. However well they're performing, they're performing less well than they could. And they're going to die younger. Mm -hmm. These systems that we're talking about, about will to live and pursuit, and these neurochemical systems are tied to our sense of will to live. And so when um, be very careful of cynicism. If it's already grown in you, learn to suppress it by focusing on positive things. It's, um, it doesn't mean you can't come from a place of anger or a place that, you know, Lord knows I've done that, you know, sourced from a place of anger, sourced from a place of fear. But cynicism is very dangerous and it will shorten your, your mental life and it will shorten your performance. And mm -hmm. dopamine and these serotonin systems of gratitude and humor and drive and levity and play a sense of play. I, you know, these are not um, motivational things. These are neurochemical things. Mm. There's a lot to unpack in that, in that, uh, that part, which I'm like, my brain's buzzing. <laughs> so one of the things that I guess I'm curious about out of all that, you mentioned dop dopamine, dopamine a lot and serotonin. Have you ever come across somebody that has over too much dopamine? What does that look like? And someone that has very little dopamine and what does that look like? And same with serotonin and, and all those sort of thing. 
Yeah. Um, and as you asked me that, I realized I failed completely to answer your previous question, like nutrition and supplementation and how those factor into these. So, I, be perfect uh, so I'll just briefly say, you know, look, I'm not a, I, I, so I, when previously I had a lab down in San Diego and I, I'm Sachin Panda, we should credit Sachin at the Salk for, he is really the guy who popularized, popularized intermittent fasting. Um, um, you can look up his work about timed eating schedules. Actually, the the originator of of intermittent fasting was not a scientist, a guy named Ori Hofmeckler, who was in Israeli special forces and then talked about the warrior diet of eating once or twice a day, limited time windows. Um, you can look up Ori's very nice guy and very deserves credit for really coming up with that. But Sachin's as lab has shown um, real health benefits to having a restricted feeding window every 24 hours. I personally like to eat for a much larger portion of my day. If I if I restrict my feeding window to six hours, I eat everything and I like want to explode because I have big appetite. I, I also just love to eat. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so if let's say somebody has poor motivation, like they're just not engaging in things. You know, it's interesting because um, shortening your feeding window will stimulate acetylcholine. Uh, excuse me, will stimulate norepinephrine. That kind of sense of agitation. A lot of people find they can focus better. They have more energy if they're not eating so much throughout the day. Some people find the opposite. So is you that have to dangerous? Kind of play though? With that. that. Yes, I'm is, sorry. Is that dangerous though? I mean, I think that you know we. I think it's very clear that you want to have some period of time every 24 hours where you're not ingesting food. Typically, that's during sleep, right? But for cellular health and cellular repair, I think the data are now overwhelming that um, you you don't want to be ingesting amino acids and nutrients around the clock. It actually can be quite detrimental. It can, according to Sinclair and others, it can shorten your lifespan. Um, so restricting your feeding window to, for some people, it's 12 hours. For some people, it's 10. For some, it's eight. I think that low levels, it's, we're not talking starvation, but we're talking about restricting that feeding window can create, uh, you know, like for instance, I push my first meal out to about noon each day. And in the morning, it, it heightens my sense of alertness because we know it increases things like epinephrine release and adrenaline release. I drink caffeine and coffee in the morning. Now, if you have trouble slowing down at night and sleeping and want to relax, well, that's why I eat my carbohydrates at night because it will increase serotonin, things like turkey, white meats, and, and carbohydrates. Um, the precursor is tryptophan, tryptophan, and then eventually 5-HTP and some other things in the pathway, and then serotonin, which helps you sleep. So there are things that people can do. You know, if people are clinically depressed, they need to talk to a, a psychologist and or psychiatrist. But typically what psychiatrists will prescribe is either an antidepressant that's of the SSRI variety, meaning selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, things like prolac, Prozac, Zoloft, and others, and those increase serotonin. The side effects of those, if they exist, they don't always exist, tend to be lack of appetite, lack of motivation, or lack of libido, those kinds of things. Because if you think about it, you're giving the molecule that is the molecule of satiety and feeling fine. So why would you have to go pursue the things that would ordinarily lead to those? Mm. The other variety of, of antidepressants, things like Wellbutrin, um, tend to be stimulate dopamine and norepinephrine release. They tend to make people in pursuit of things, tends to make people feel agitated, tends to make people feel kind of upstate, you know, in kind of an up state of mind, um, but it can increase anxiety. So when we, if you see somebody who's taken methamphetamine or taking cocaine, you're looking at somebody who's bathed their brain in dopamine. Mm. And what you'll find is that they're always thinking about the next thing. They'll talk fast. They're thinking about the thing that's out there in the world. People who, again, who have taken a drug that gives them high levels of serotonin, they're going to basically not want to go do anything except things that are more of the like eat food, just be here, amotivated. So when I, if someone's clinically amotivated and clinically depressed, I mean, they need to be very cautious about what, you know, drugs that are going to push them in one direction or the other. I, I certainly don't recommend recreational drugs to anybody, but because um, A, they're illegal and B, they really do cause terrible effects. Mm. but moving that feeding window and what you eat can have an effect. Some people will supplement. Now I should say that my lab doesn't work on these things and I want to be very clear. I'm not a physician. So if you're going to pursue any of the supplementation regimes that I'll talk about in a moment, you definitely want to talk to a physician. I'll mention a website that is completely not for profit. I have no 
um, affiliation with them anyway, but called examine.com where you can put in any supplement. It'll show give you links to the PubMed studies related to those supplements. So you can, it has what's called the human effect matrix describes a lot of the effects. So like for people that have trouble sleeping, for instance, things like magnesium three and eight theanine promote the release of things like serotonin and GABA, which tends to shut down our thinking, allow people to fall asleep and stay asleep. Um, milk of magnesia, the same reason why they say a glass of milk before bed or something like that. For people that have trouble with motivation and focus, you know, I think it's a mistake to run out and start taking Adderall and, you know, and do it taking stimulants unless a doctor has deliberately prescribed that for you and you, and they know you very well and there's a real need, but there are amino acids like tyrosine, things like caffeine, which we all, you know, caffeine, um, to, to increase this norepinephrine. Mm. Right. Basically, um, reduces adenosine load, that kind of thing to make me less sleepy. Um, things like L-tyrosine to promote a little bit of release of dopamine uh, for occasional use. Caffeine I use every day, but I don't go around kind of dosing myself with amino acids to increase my dopamine levels because I want my own dopamine levels to be working for me. So there are tools out there and you can explore for those, but ultimately the behavioral tools are going to be the best ones. And let's face it, the best thing for mental health, get a good night's sleep. You have trouble sleeping? Well, get off your phone at 10 p.m. and maybe consider taking magnesium 3 and 8 and theanine and make sure you eat a decent carbohydrate-rich meal in the evening. You know, if you have trouble with motivation and focus, well, then consider maybe pushing your eating window a little bit away from the time in which you want to focus, drinking some caffeine. You might consider... Um, you know, pursuing something like, uh, you know, supplementing with L-tyrosine occasionally, but better to not have to supplement with anything. The, the reason I mention all this is that what's starting to emerge is perhaps you've noticed as I'm talking is that you've got these neurochemical systems that pull you towards sleep and rest, serotonin and GABA, that pull you towards effort and focus and drive dopamine, norepinephrine, that pull you toward being a total you know, vegetable not wanting to do anything, that's the opioid system. I mean, the opioid system, the reason it's so bad when it's triggered with drugs is op the opioid system was designed to trickle out tiny bits when you've been in long duration effort. It's a painkiller that was designed so that you and I could go hunt for three days. And on the third day, when we're like, look, this sucks, this is terrible my foot hurts. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm just going to endure and you push on. That's not dopamine. That's the opioid system coming to give you some pain relief. So when people are taking these, these opioids, they're just basking in this like world of pain, everything gone. They're numb. They're like their neurology becomes numb. So I'm a, a fan of always thinking, okay, behaviors and mindsets first diet and supplementation second. And then if all that is being done more or less correctly, most of the time, then perhaps thinking about kind of prescription drug regimens that, but the twist in this is that if somebody is clinically depressed, they often can't do the behaviors that are going to get them to the place where they can restore this stuff. And sometimes they need a, a chemical nudge. Mm. And I think provided it's being done in the, you know, with the care and oversight of a, of a really good physician, I think they, some of those drugs that I mentioned, like this uh, antidepressants really can help, but I think that there's an over-reliance on them. They, they should not be the first line of defense. And that's my opinion. So why do you think that sometimes doctors often give people when they say to, well, let's speak about being clinically depressed. So what's the difference between just being feeling down and being clinically diagnosed with depression? Is that a constant reoccurring thing, like you're constantly feeling down, numb, and all that sort of stuff. And why do you think that doctors actually prescribe a, a medical drug that for a friend of mine that actually had depression and he was prescribed these drugs, it actually made him feel worse and more depressed and it actually mm -hmm. made him go down the suicidal route, which he never was mm -hmm. before. So why do you think that doctors sort of do that? And why do, why do you think that the drugs exist in the first place? <laughs> well, I think, you know, so there's no biomarker blood test for depression yet mm. uh, or for anxiety. One of the efforts that my lab is very much involved in is trying to develop objective measures for mental health, in particular anxiety and PTSD and things of that sort, perhaps a topic for another time. But 
Mm. You know, typically you go in and you talk to the psych and you tell them what's going on. And they're, they, these are well-meaning people, you know, I mean, they're going to do their best to hear what you're saying. And really the criteria are subjective criteria, you know, do, you know, loss of appetite, loss of this, loss of that. And I think they prescribe the drugs with the best of intentions. Mm. And oftentimes they do help a lot of people. We don't hear so many stories about the millions and billions of people they do help, mm. especially for people that have had a major loss or life event where they just cannot get themselves on the path of the behaviors. They don't have the energy. Their will to live is gone. And so for those people, I think they, they look to a pharmaceutical treatment to try and get something a positive shift quickly. It doesn't always work, but I think the intention is right because those people really are in a, they're hemorrhaging, they're emotionally hemorrhaging. Mm. And so they have to do something about it and they have to do something about it immediately. Now, also, frankly, there have not been many discussions about what tools people should be applying to stay out of those categories. You know, it's only in the last, we've got, look, in the last 20 years, Physical fitness has gone from bodybuilding gyms that were very niche um, and yoga studios that was the, all this embedded language and complex, and meditation centers and retreats. And now you've got yoga classes online and on the corner, you've got people, lift, men and women lift weights. So the physical fitness space has emerged to a place that people are very comfortable thinking about, yeah, you know, you want to get fit, you lift some objects uh, that are heavy, you um, change the foods you eat, here are some foods. Look, they, whether or not you're carnivore diet or vegan, intermittent fasting or not, I mean, there are, there are dozens of options out there that can direct you toward particular endpoints and you can try them and eventually get to where you want to go. Mm. With the mind and with the brain, that information just hasn't been available. If somebody's feeling down or amotivated or anxious, they haven't had that information. Now, I'm not a clinician, I'm a professor, I'm a research scientist, but I've spent enough time with the communities of people in mental health. I have collaborators in psychiatry and in the world of mental health. One of my life missions now is to try and get people tools. So breathing tools to help people calm themselves if they feel too anxious. Um, tools oriented around mindset or description of tools around mindset so that people can understand how these reward systems that we were talking about earlier work so that they can make consistent progress over time. And sometimes that's people who are doing very well, but are not accessing, they're only accessing the dopamine system and not the serotonin system. And they're like, I don't know why I'm exhausted and I'm feeling like I'm burning out. It's like, well, mm. you're living in this regime, this neurochemical regime that's very extreme. You need to balance that out a little bit. So, you know, and I'm not the only one out there, but I would say a lot of the stuff around mental health uh, is has been shrouded and masked in language that frankly is very vague. You know, people like even in the respiration community, we know that patterns of breathing have a profound influence on our states of mind and we can control our breathing. Therefore, we can control our states of mind. But the community around breath work within which I have many close friends and I respect those folks. I mean, you listen to them and it sounds crazy. I mean, it sounds crazy. And so if you're not in that community, you know, people like the typical person off the street thinks this is nuts. And also there's it's all like the language, the naming of it, everything's been named after some proprietary brand. So one thing that I'm very active in doing on my Instagram and elsewhere is to try and say, let's just unpack this. Mm. You have too much stress. Well, maybe you need two kinds of tools. Maybe you need a tool that will allow you to calm yourself quickly. So there is a tool. It's these physiological size, double inhales followed by exhales. Do those anytime you want through the nose on the inhales, exhale through the mouth or just all through the mouth. That activates a calming circuit. This is supported by published research. Or maybe if you're somebody who feels, wakes up with a lot of agitation, maybe you should spend some time in that agitation by doing some intense breathing and then some exhales and holding your breath briefly in five to 15 seconds with your you know, lungs empty to get comfortable being in those states of discomfort. And you'll notice I'm not saying, oh, you have to take this class or learn this method or it's, it's look, I didn't invent it. Mother nature invented these things. So it's that the reason is I'm trying to, arm people with a logic that says, I don't feel well. There are a couple different roads I could drive down to different tools I could use to start to feel better. And now, oh, okay, I have some control over my nervous system mm. or I'm feeling tired every day at 4 p.m. Well, let's talk about that and what that could mean. So in any event, the, I think the world of mental health and around um, solving the puzzles of the mind are only now coming to light because we just didn't know about them. 
Mm. There wasn't good science. And most of the, the good solid science has been in the last 10, 15 years. And, you know, uh, I'm certainly not the only one out there, but, you know, humility aside, you know, there are very few people who are leaving their laboratories to talk to people about what's happening in laboratories. Typically you get people doing, you know, these high profile public events and it's like to promote a book and there's nothing wrong with that. I have a book I'm writing. I'll promote it when it comes out too. But, but there, I think that the scientific community owes the general public. Mm. They owe the general public to translate the knowledge they've collected with their tax dollars and to tell them what it means for them. And I think most people in the scientific community either are uninterested, don't know how, or are afraid to do that because they're afraid of taking a stand. And I don't know, maybe I hit my head one too many times boxing or skateboarding, but I'm just going to do it um, because I believe provided it's done safely and with an awareness to what the end goal is, it's not just important. I believe it's my obligation. Mm. That, it's very fascinating. And there's so much that I do actually want to speak about. One of them being trauma and how that actually affects the brain and how we can heal trauma. But I feel like that's another discussion for another time. And then I want to talk about addiction and how that impacts the brain and all the, the neurological pathways involved with addiction and how we can break addiction and why we are such addictive creatures in the first place. But what I will ask is, has there been any questions that you haven't been able, or what, what is a question that you have for yourself that you haven't been able to answer yet? Oh, so many. Well, I will say around trauma and addiction, I'd be delighted to come back on and we could talk about those, but I, I just will kind of earmark one little thing around those, which is that the trauma community too, the trauma treatment community too, still has not come forth with a clear model. I think there are two models that I see out there. One is to cope with a trauma. You need to learn to feel okay in the story of the trauma. Mm. And another camp believes that the cathartic approach that you actually need to go into the feeling of pain and trauma and sort of purge it or recapture it somehow. And if this sounds vague, it's because it is vague. I think one of the things my lab and other laboratories, it's not just my lab are doing now is trying to figure out what are the neural circuits that need to change in order to rewire the relationship to a traumatic experience. Cause let's face it, you're not going to extinguish the memory. Mm. You're not going to just delete that. How wonderful would that be? But you're not, you need to change the, the body and the brain's feeling of that. I mean, there's the book, the body keeps the score, which pointed to the fact that the body is involved, but there doesn't point. It's a great book. I, I think it's a brilliant book, but we're still in search of answers of how to remap our ex negative experiences in ways that serve us and don't hinder us. So we can revisit that. Likewise, with uh, with uh, addiction, it's a large. There's a lot, huge basis for anxiety in addiction, especially around time of recovery and relapse. So, um, questions that I would like to solve in my lifetime. Well, one of the ones that I'm obsessed with is neuroplasticity. This amazing ability that human brains have to change themselves and to self-direct our own change, what I call self-directed adaptive plasticity, which is a mouthful, but to distinguish it from the forms of plasticity that happen during childhood, which you just expose kids to something and their brain changes. In adulthood, you have to make your own brain change, mm. frankly. If you want to change your brain for the better, you have to do it. You cannot change somebody else's brain for the better in adulthood. They have to do it. You can change it for the worse, but I find you, that you can't change it for the better. So, so I, the the question of what are the portals to plasticity continues to you know be my obsession and i am certain that it involves accessing certain states of mind and focus and neurochemical underpinnings and some of it will eventually involve machines um, brain machine interface devices that we can put on that will help enhance plasticity i do think that's going to happen i'm you know i grew up and i'm here in silicon valley i believe that machines have a role to play in this mm. but i think we can do a lot with our own natural chemistry and our own biology that hasn't been tapped into yet so i think the most interesting question to me is how to access faster brain changes positive brain changes faster learning faster changes of beliefs. Look, so many of the problems we're seeing in the world right now are because people fundamentally disagree and they're in kind of getting dopamine hits from their own beliefs. So until we can start to rewire, understand the belief system and tap into that in positive ways that serve everybody, 
we're going to be struggling. I think it can be done, but um, that's the question that I, I remain obsessed by. And I, I think, uh, you know, mother nature built these systems in us to be able to change our brain circuitry so that we could adapt. And the problems we see in the world right now, whether or not it's COVID-19 or the incredible racial disparities that we see, the challenges around that, those are problems that we have the neural machinery to solve. We can do that, but it's going to require a lot of things. But one of the things it's going to require is a better understanding of how brain change, positive brain change actually comes about. Mm. So that's where I'm putting my focus these days. Which is another line of conversation that we can dive into as well. So much to actually unpack here um, about what you actually study. And I'm fascinated by this idea of how machines are actually going to either help us or deter us or make it worse. So is that there's that underlining question where we are heading towards a more advanced technological future. But then again, you've also got to ask yourself the question, is that dangerous? Is that a bad thing? Will, you know, that old question, will the machines take over or will we create something that is so technologically advanced that we can't ourselves control it? Like it just enhances too much of as it's like more powerful than our own brains. Is that actually possible? And that that's a question. I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm very optimistic, frankly, look, you know, even if we look at the challenges that are in the world right now, right. 2020 is an extraordinarily challenging year for humanity. If we look at that, you know, there's certain things that our biology can do naturally. And there's certain things like rewiring beliefs, um, dealing with viruses that sure our bodies can have some viral resistance, but we we're, there's a huge effort to obtain new technologies, vaccines and other technologies as well to try and stem the spread of COVID-19. And even for those of you out there that think that the, you know, the response was whatever and was, you know, inappropriate, whatever, whatever your belief, we do this. This is what human beings do. When we reach the limits of our biological potential and we say, wow, I want to get from point A to point B faster. We build things like cars and airplanes. We build technologies. That's what we do. And I think we are reaching the point where we've seen enough of the same problems occur over and over again different viruses, but the same kind of issues, in, you know, that we need to start developing new technologies. Now, the phone is a very interesting one because I don't look at the phone as a phone. I look at the phone as a separate set of brain areas because this brain, it's not like a car that I drive. This is a, the phone, my smartphone is a very dynamic machine that includes components of my memory. Yep. It knows more about what I like than I know. And so it's kind of naive to think that your phone and the information that you're getting and my phone and the information that I'm getting are the equivalent experience. So the the device that is the phone is actually like another brain area or set of brain areas. And so now we are in brain machine interface. I do think the future of brain machine interface is very exciting, especially in the clinical realm for treatment of stroke and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so forth, movement disorders in particular. But I, I am very optimistic. I think that despite some challenges, too much screen time, not enough sleep, provided that we adhere to our basic requirements as organisms to reproduce and flourish and form social connections, we were designed to adapt. And lately we're doing it with machines. And I think that's the way we're headed more and more. And it's hard for even somebody of my generation to accept But when you talk to young people, I have a niece, she's 14 years old. She doesn't think the phone is an intrusion. The phone is a portal to her social life. Mm. So I find it a little irritating sometimes, but I didn't grow up with it. So we have to remember what our neurology was built for. It was built to use, but it was built to adapt to the habitat in which we were raised. And I am very optimistic. I do not think robots and AI are going to take over the planet and start running us like little pawns on a chessboard. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is we're going to start realizing that AI and some components of machines can make better, more benevolent decisions than we can. Mm. And I'll just give one kind of very low level example. This isn't going to transform the world, but just think about a group or an organization 
And normally you have someone who kind of mediates and somebody talks and other people are quiet and you've got people with great ideas and people with not so great ideas. But you could imagine a machine knowing something about each person, paying attention to their physiology and saying like, hey, we haven't heard from you or what are your thoughts about this particular point that was made five minutes ago? And you'd be like, wow, yeah, actually I hadn't thought about it. So a machine that could cultivate answers that would be better than just a bunch of people you know, trying to help each other. I mean, that's why we build machines. We build Mm. machines to do things that we can't do with just our biological capabilities. Mm. And that's what separates us from the other animals of the planet. That's why we're in charge of this planet. So I'm very excited. Um, I think we have to move carefully. We have to move thoughtfully. And I want to be very clear. I'm talking about benevolent goals and machines, Mm. better, more inclusive societies. So just to be really clear, but if we think that we can dodge this whole AI machine thing, forget it. Forget it. You already we all we've already been in it with the smartphone oh, in yeah. the last 10 years. Yep. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. I'm gonna save a lot of the other questions I have for a part two. Um I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Huberman. Uh, I've learned so, learned so much. So much to actually unpack, which I keep saying, but it's true. And I'm really looking forward to our second interview where we can dive a little bit deeper into some things. So I really appreciate you. Oh, well, I'm, I appreciate you and the opportunity to connect. I would be delighted to talk about any of these um, many things that I sort of threw out there um, in, uh, with a lot of uh, depth and precision at any time. Um, I realize I kind of scattered a bunch of topics out there, but um, I really appreciate the chance to talk neuroscience with you and um, be delighted to come back anytime. Even though I don't actually study the subject uh, or am, I'm not a scientist, I actually failed science in high school um, and math and all that sort of stuff, but it's something that I am naturally over the, over the years become more curious about learning because it is very fascinating you throw me an inch, I'll take a mile <laughs> with, all, with all this You're stuff. You're a scientist. There You're you a go. scientist. There's that, that, there's that, there's that curiosity and um, I, can, I, can, I can feel it. So uh, by all means. Uh, so many questions. It. So many questions. Well, uh, we, need, we certainly need more teachers. They do such important work. So mm. wonderful. The world is grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Huberman. I don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it'll go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.